This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. It's good to be with you this afternoon. Thank you for the invitation to join you on this happy weekend. A weekend made all the happier by what's ahead of us tomorrow in the ordination service tomorrow afternoon and evening for those great young men of God who are being ordained to the work of the gospel tomorrow. What I'm staying for and the biggest draw of the weekend for me to be around these men on that time. I appreciate your prayers and thoughtfulness for me uh, as I've been I know you're aware, probably more aware, it sounds like, than my own congregation, how, that I've been sick. Because <laughs> I've, I've not been wanting to make a big point of it in my own congregation. And here I think Tim's made a real big point of it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy to tell you that I'm feeling very good. Um, that I was down in Cincinnati this past week together with Tim and Dr. Spady and uh, visiting a hepatologist, a a man whose specialty is the liver, and came back with what both Adam and I viewed as fairly good news, that that, uh, first that there's treatment that he wants to do for my liver rather than saying, oh, it's gone, and then second that that, uh, my recent, if you heard of my being in the hospital with jaundice and really being ill, that that may not have been the product of the underlying liver condition, but may have been largely the product of something else known as Gilbert syndrome. How many of you have heard of it, or is it Gilbert? One person here has heard of Gilbert syndrome, which means that it's not a product of hepatitis C, and it may well be something that uh, is independent of that and doesn't signify liver damage. So I'm, I'm grateful to God for that. In our church, and I thank you for your prayers, and it was great having Adam and Tim down there. It's been great having David come up, or Max, come up and be with us. It's been absolutely wonderful, and yet this weekend, sad that Mike Bowles has been up doing such a beautiful work of God in our life up in in Toledo. Sad this weekend because he's not able to be here today because we're pouring concrete on the first floor of our new building. And it's a big day, and he's down there. I got some pictures this morning of the process already going on and the floor being laid down there. So it's exciting for us, but Lisa, I'm sorry that your husband's not here. But I do know that because David Avasara is about to be ordained, he will be back tomorrow. So, (laughs) um, and I want to say, finally, as we turn to the Word of God, that in in my church, I think it's the case here, there's a certain division among the staff and among the young guys in the church and there are the thin guys who are unhappy, yeah? And, and their thinness is a product of their unhappiness, yeah? And then there are the, 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 rather, the rather pleasantly plump guys who are happy. And, and I know you're looking at me and you're saying you're a thin guy, but that's only the result of sickness. And, and at heart, I am at least as big as my son Nathan there, closing in on Tim, and I'm a happy guy. And so I am not like some of these young men I look and I say, if they got any thinner, they could go through a door sideways with it closed. <laughs> Our passage this, this morning or this evening or this afternoon is, is the Great Commission. I have the end of it. And the end of it is 
I'd like to read the entirety of it beginning in 18, but the end of it is the last clause. The clause begins with and at the end of verse 20. So reading beginning in verse 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will speak to us through your word this afternoon, that you will, that you will apply it to our hearts and that we will employ it in ways that are right. Guide our path. May it be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, so that we might not sin against you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like to give you a four-part outline which I intend to follow in our relatively brief time together this afternoon. I hope to keep it relatively brief. Four parts to this outline are first, uh, this is a personal promise. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is a personal promise, a promise of Christ's presence that is to us personally. Second, Christians are primarily comforted by this presence of Christ. That the purpose of this presence of Christ and this promise is to comfort us. Third, it is of comfort to Christians because Christians will fear the world. And fourth, that our hope as Christians is found after the conclusion of the earth, after the end. Now, of course, everything I just said seems to be an application of this passage, that this is a personal promise of Christ's presence in our lives personally, that we are to be primarily comforted by this presence in our lives, that its purpose is to bring us comfort in the midst of hard things, because third, we will fear the world, but Christ, after this world comes to a crashing end, will give us hope and bring us out of the, of the crash, out of the, out of the disastrous end to glory. And all this sounds like standard teaching on this verse, on these, these verses, and in particular the conclusion to this passage, the promise that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And yet, actually, these are four falsehoods that we believe. All right, so I'm not advocating this. I'm saying these are four false premises. These three, four things I've said to you are four things that we need to clear our minds of. There are certain ways in which they're true. All right? Of course, it's a comfort that Jesus is with us. Of course, there is an end which is going to be more glorious than now. That there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Of course, we will fear the world, and of course, we will be personally benefited by the presence of Christ in this earth and by this promise of his, of his being with us until the end. But in the end, taking it in these ways, personally comforting us because we're frightened and we're looking to a to a return of Jesus that will make all things good after all things have gone bad. This, this view that is so common of this is an absolute mischaracterization of the verses that we have before us. And I'd like to begin with the first. 
The first, which is the, the misconception that this is a personal promise. That this is a promise to you individually. That Jesus in speaking this is speaking to a, a cluster of grapes. And he's speaking to them not as a cluster but to a, each grape individually. That this is a promise you can claim and say, I know Jesus is with me about. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is not with you. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be comforted by it. But think about the passage, the context which my brother Tim spoke about yesterday, which I'd like to just remind you of uh, this afternoon. Jesus is speaking to the 11 apostles. He's speaking to the ones who are closest to him. This is not his ascension. His ascension takes place, we're told, from Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. This is somewhere else in the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. Probably during that period that's recounted at the end of John, when Peter's gone back and returned to fishing. He doesn't know what to do. He says, I'm going to go fish. And the disciples are up back again. They've gone north 60, 70 miles from Jerusalem up to Galilee. And Peter has returned to fishing in the Sea of Tiberias, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee. And he's there fishing and Jesus appears to him. And and so it's an entirely different locale from both the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus' disciples have gone back there in part because they're discouraged and they're not quite sure what to do with events, the way things have gone since the, with, since the resurrection and actually since the crucifixion. It's at that point that, that Peter is confronted by Jesus and told to feed my sheep, feed my flock, restored. And apparently at some point during that time in Galilee, he said to the eleven, I want you to go and meet me on a mountainside and this is the the occasion which they're with him it's a mountainside uh, up in Galilee sometime between the the resurrection and the ascension and it's just the 11. Now why is this significant? Well it's significant because Jesus is making a promise to the 11 that he will be with you. I am with you always even to the end of time. The question is, who is the you that Jesus is making this promise to? Initially, it seems apparent it's it's to the 11, right? But he's making a promise to the 11 that he's going to be with them to the end of the age, to the end of the eon, that he will be with them until the word actually means consummation, until the consummation, that Jesus is going to be with the you that he has spoken to and given the promise to until the end of time. So Jesus expects the 11 to remain alive to the end of time. Does he think that they're going to be around? Jesus said that no one knows the day and hour of my return. Only the Father in heaven, not even the Son of Man is aware of it. So does Jesus think that perhaps the 11 are going to be around and that his return is going to be so quick that they're all going to be alive when he comes back? I heard someone say no, obviously not. We know it from several different sources. We know it from, from John 21, 18 and 19. It's at the very end of John where Peter is told by Jesus that when you were young, you dressed yourself and you walked where you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will be dressed by others and you will be led by the hand. And we're told there that by that means, Jesus made a, Peter aware of the method of his death. Jesus wasn't under any illusion that Peter was going to remain alive to the end of time 
He had told him, you will be a martyr. You are going to lay down your, your life for my kingdom. It's the, the great joy of, of the passage that, again, Tim read yesterday of James and John seeking to, to be seated at the right hand of Jesus in his glory. They say, may we have your right and your left hand. Jesus says to them, can you drink the cup that, that I will drink? And they, we think, in their pride and in the arrogance of their hearts that made them ask for that privilege in the first place, say to him, yes, we can drink that cup. And you say, what? You really think you can go through the crucifixion? You really think you can die as Jesus died? Do you remember what Jesus says to them? The very next thing he says. Does anyone remember? What? You will drink. Absolutely. You will drink that cup, but it's not mine to give that privilege. It's the Father's. What a powerful promise it was to James and John that they would drink the cup. Imagine being told, you will give your life for Christ. That's, that's a beautiful thing. That they will share his sufferings. And he's told them that they'll drink it. That they'll be faithful. So there's no question that these men are men who are going to die. In fact, the legend got started because of him saying uh, to Peter that you're going to die this way. Someone turned to John and said, Master, what about him? And he says, if he is to live to the end of time, this, what's concern of it is it of yours? And then out of that, we're told in John, a legend developed that, that Jesus had said that John was going to live to the end of time. But John says, that wasn't the case. All he said was, if so, who, what does it matter to you? Jesus knows they're going to die. What does that mean? Well, it means, very obvious, that when he says, I'm going to be with you to the very end of the age, he's not speaking simply to the eleven. This is a promise, and it's a plural you, but I don't know if that makes a lot of difference. This is a promise that is to the entire church. He's speaking to the foundations and the pillars of the church, and he's saying, I'm going to be with what you're building to the end of time. It's the same as if Tim said, I'm going to be with this church until the end of the ages. Now, you wouldn't take it as a promise that you're going to all be alive to the end of time. If Tim had the power to be with them, he'd say he's going to be with my children. It's a corporate promise. That is what we have here. It is a promise of commitment to the bride of Christ. Of course, it's absolutely in accord with what Jesus says elsewhere. Where two or three are gathered in my name, where the church is, there am I also. Does this mean that Jesus is not with those who are individuals? No, through the Holy Spirit he is with them. But there is a promise that the Son of God will be in a particular and powerful way with his people when they are gathered corporately, when they are with each other as the church, as the bride of Christ. That is a promise that that is surpassing that of the Holy Spirit. That is a promise that even goes beyond simply that we will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's a gift to the church, the bridegroom's gift. Now, I make this point because, as has been said by almost everyone who's preached this weekend, there is the sense in which we have appropriated verses like these and personally, and that the world in which we live, at least the Christian world in which we live, is a world that has taken every promise like this and applied it to me. Some years ago, I dated a young woman for a brief period of time who was the, the daughter of 
a man and a woman who had gone to Wheaton College in the 1940s and 1950s, which means that she was sort of the, the daughter of evangelical royalty. You know, that era at Wheaton College was, that was the Elizabeth Elliot, Billy Graham era. It was just the, the heyday. And her parents were there during that time. Her father was an elder in the church that I was an intern at. He had been head of the elder board. It was a famous church with one of the, the most famous preachers of the last half century in the, in the American, at least, English-speaking world as its pastor. She had grown up in that church. She had gone away to, I think it was Biola College. After Biola College, she, she, uh, she got out of college and she applied to an evangelical mission board. She got sent by a very conservative evangelical mission board to Belgium, where she had done a whole term as a missionary. She was on her furlough at the time I met her, having come back from years in Belgium as a church planner. Now, not the church planner, but working as part of a team. And that year that she had come back, you know what? This woman, daughter of an elder, a graduate of a Christian school, missionary to Europe, you know what that woman decided that she was going to do that, she had, that had never been done, that she had never had done before in her life? I asked this in the car as I was driving up here. I was talking to people, some of the people that came with me. They said, did she decide to date? <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good guess, but no. It's more logical that she would suddenly begin to date at 25 or 26 than what, what she actually decided. She decided that it was about time that she got baptized. Can you believe it? A 25-year-old woman... In one of the most well-known churches in the evangelical world, her father, the chief elder of that church over the years, graduate of a Christian school, missionary to Belgium, taking communion probably since she was 12, but she decides at 25 that she's going to get baptized. Why? Well, I think it, her heart felt like getting baptized at about the age of 25. And it was a good feeling of her heart. And she thought she was about ready to be baptized. And so she said, you know what? I want to be baptized. I'm going to be baptized now. Now, you think about it and you go, what on earth is going on here? What's going on that this young woman who's a child of evangelicalism thinks that it's about time at 25, after years as a missionary, to be baptized? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. This is a woman who's been taught the evangelical way, which is that Jesus comes to live in our heart, and we have to establish a home for him in our heart that's conducive to his presence, and that everything that goes on in our lives is really about our heart, and we need to work at the heart level. And my heart's the important thing, and I want Jesus in my heart, so I'm working on constantly renovating my heart, and I want my heart to be right. And she's at the point where she's started ready to, she's got the foundation of her heart down, and, and she's going to build the first story of her walk with God by being baptized at 25. She's now ready to be baptized. Everything in her life was a feeling of the heart. Everything came down to how she felt. And, you know, honestly, I wasn't very different. I think back on my response to her and I said, wow, that's great. You're going to get baptized. I think back on it. I think, what was I thinking? Why didn't I say to her, what on earth? Are you, are you sure you should be baptized? I mean, you didn't get baptized years ago. You haven't done it. Are you sure you're actually a Christian? Maybe you shouldn't be getting baptized. Maybe since you're uh, obviously Credo Baptist, 
you'd better examine yourself and find out whether you really believe the things that you've been teaching over there in Belgium. You know? If you haven't done this basic thing because your heart hasn't been in it, where is your heart? Who owns the key to your heart? What's the importance of this, uh, of this promise being to the church? Why is it important, a distinction to make, that this is not a promise to our individual hearts, but to the church? The importance of it is that it's a very different thing to be committed to an institution rather than being devoted to a sinful person. Let me explain. Some years ago, my wife Cheryl and I were having one of the one of the epic battles of our lives and uh, one of the few times that she got angrier than I got during the battle and I'm sure I had just said something really nasty to Cheryl and I don't remember what it was but it's one of those terrible times in a marriage where you actually try and hurt your wife by what you say I'm sure it's one of those times where you want her to know that you you want her hurt and I remember Cheryl looking at me. This was, now it was more than 10 years ago. I remember her looking at me and saying to me, David, you know what? There's only one reason I'm still with you. Now, I tell this story a lot. Half of you have heard this story before. I looked at her and I thought, whoa, that's something from Cheryl. What would she say is the one reason that she's still with me? I thought, I don't know if I want to hear. I thought, I'd better ask, because this could be illuminating. So I, I waited a little bit, and I, with a sort of timid voice, I said, what's that reason? Why? She looked at me with disdain for me. She said, I'm still with you because I said I would be. Uh, oh, uh, that's what I want in a wife. You know? I want a wife who's committed to her word, a wife who's committed to the institution of marriage, a wife who is committed to God and her standing before him, and who is not a woman who is looking at my heart and saying, I hate that heart, I don't like that heart, I don't want to be with that heart anymore. What does the Bible tell us about the heart? It is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And we're trying to, to bring Jesus into our heart and make it ready for him and have it be a nice little cozy fellowship with Jesus in our hearts. If Jesus is half as discriminating as Cheryl, he's not going to like your heart. He's going to say that place is a mess. It's foul. It stinks. And you want a commitment from Christ that's greater than to your lousy heart. You want a commitment that is to the church, to a bride, to an institution that will go on and on no matter how wicked you are. Because you are a part of his bride. This is the promise. There's a little book, some of you have heard of it, The Practice of the Presence of God. How many of you have read this? Many of you. 
You know, it's by Brother Lawrence, who was a Carmelite monk in the 1600s, lived for 80 years. He was not a he was not ordained, he was a lay fellow in the Carmelite monastery where he lived in the 1600s. And he was the dishwasher in the, in the commune, in the, uh, in the monastery. And he, he actually did not write this book. I mean, it's not actually a book, it's actually a collection of a few letters that he wrote and the recollections of some of his superiors in the monastery, and actually a cardinal of the Catholic Church, a collection of their their remembrances of conversations with him so sort of working retroactively to remember what he had said to them at points so it's a set of conversations recalled by those who held them with him and of letters and uh, it was given the title the practice of the presence because this man working as the dishwasher in the monastery was known as the happiest and most godly man in the monastery and so uh, after he died these these things were collected to be sort of a guide to future monks and to other Christians as to how we might enjoy the presence of God. But the, and it's actually a wonderful little book. But there is a sense in which the title of the book has become the entirety of the book for many in the evangelical and reformed world. That, that the practice of the presence of God is something we engage in. That it is something that, that we have to practice knowing that God is present. When I was a young Christian, I used to walk down the road and I'd pray. And uh, I felt like my life was sort of departing from God because I wasn't in Alaska where I'd come alive as a Christian and my prayer life wasn't quite as exciting. And so I thought, how am I going to make it clear to God that I know he's here? And so I thought, and for, for about a year, I walked like this. Can you imagine as I'd walk and pray for an hour in the evening what I was doing by going like this? What? I was holding hands with God, all right? It was a, it was a mnemonic um, device. It was a way of jogging my memory to say I'm holding hands with God. And it's the practice of the presence of God, right? I'm practicing that God is with As I walk with my hand, I'm practicing the presence. I'm recalling that he's here in my heart. And this is not what is taught actually by Brother Lawrence. I'm going to come back to this book in a short bit. But, you know, this is the way we look at it. Like, I'm going to practice that God's present. I'm going to, I'm going to remind myself real hard that God's with me here. I'm going, to, I'm going to hold his hand as I'm walking down. Of course, what would have been a bar, far better way to know the presence of God than using my hand as I walk down the road to grip an invisible arm of God? Well, I, I tell you, there, I could give you about a thousand different things. Would have been far better... And a far more perfect realization of the presence of God. If I had taken that hand, put it in my wallet, taken out a $10 bill, walked by a beggar and gave him the $10 bill. You understand what I'm saying? Use the hand for something. Use it for something that God has commanded. Been a far better use of the hand if I'd gone down to the local nursing home where we did have a Bible study. My father led it first and then Cheryl and I led it later. Go down there and push them around on the grounds of the nursing home. Do something that God commands. Show love to the widow. Be kind to the orphan. Give alms to the poor. There is the presence of God. Am I, am I making sense here? It's not something you conjure up in your heart. You don't sit around like a contemplative monk and say, I feel you, I feel you, I feel you. His promise is that he's with us. He is with us. 
How many of you have heard, I, I know I'm stressing this point, how many of you heard this little, book, this little booklet that's published, I think, by InterVarsity Press? You can find it on the internet, My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Boyd Munger. Number of you? Yeah. How many of you heard of it as a good thing when you first heard of it? How many of you have ever heard anyone criticize it? <laughs> Far be it from me to criticize it. You know, it's InterVarsity Press, it's great stuff. Well, it's old InterVarsity Press. And therefore, it was once great stuff. But listen to this. Now, the whole, the whole theme of this little booklet is that Jesus, when we, become, when we become Christians, what we do is we invite him into our heart. And he, the first paragraph is this. Without question, one of the most remarkable Christian doctrines is that Jesus Christ himself, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, will actually enter a heart Settle down and be at home there. Christ will make the human heart his abode. One evening I invited Christ into my heart. What an entrance he made. It was not a spectacular thing, but very real. It was at the very center of my life. He came into the darkness of my heart and turned on the light. He built a fire in the cold hearth and banished the chill. He started music where there had been stillness and he filled with the emptiness with his own loving, wonderful fellowship. I've never regretted opening the door to Christ and I never will not into eternity and then he goes through the the house that he's built and he says how embarrassed he is to invite Jesus into his library the library of his heart you know the things that he he gives himself over to the the books he reads the and Jesus says to him oh this room take all those books get rid of them and uh fill the the shelves with the books of the bible and then he says and in the center over the mantle hang a big picture of me yeah as though Jesus wants us to hang big pictures of him over our mantles yeah it's this kind of thing that we pretend that Jesus is there let's pretend he's there let's hang a picture a pretend picture of a pretend Jesus over a pretend mantle in our hearts so that we can practice the presence of Jesus nonsense The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? You can't know your heart. You can't understand it or reform it. The only way that our hearts are made right is by our being in conformity with Jesus Christ. And that begins by being grafted into the church of Jesus Christ where he lives where his power has been promised uh, it may be that there are some here who don't think of the heart as the center where Christ lives but they think of it in the mind in fact in the reformed world many people don't talk about the heart but they do think that Jesus takes up residence in their mind so they don't try and reform their heart but they try and get straight thinking I think if they can get their intellect and their logic down straight, they've got brought Jesus into the center of life. And so they, they, they transfer the love for the heart and the emphasis on the heart to the mind. And they talk about renewing the mind. And they are so concerned about the mind. And they think if they get their mind down and they disdain the church of Jesus Christ. It's the tragedy of Arthur... Arthur W. Walkington Pink, A.W. Pink. How many of you have read books by A.W. Pink? Are you aware that A.W. Pink, in the last decades of his life, 
grew so disgusted with the church and said it was so lousy that he just stopped going to church? That for decades he didn't attend any church at all? Well, why? He, he had Jesus in his mind. He had his mind. His mind was right. You understand? It wasn't the heart. It wasn't like the, the, the girl Amy I'm talking about who wanted her heart right. He had his mind right. I think of reformed men, and I, we've got some of them in our church who drag their family hours to a church where that has what they think is proper theology. If, if you've known the, the reformed guys who will go three hours on a Sunday to church, they're driving by as they drive three hours to the church where they think there's proper theology. It's it's. It's a mind game for them. It's all about the mind. They're driving for three hours to get to a church where their minds are stroked. Where they can feel among the cognoscenti, the elite who know things. And they're passing by fundamentalist Baptist church after fundamentalist Baptist church after good sort of but gnarly reformed Baptist church. So they can get to a place where there is infant baptism. Now, I believe in infant baptism. But I've said to these guys, when they drive two hours to come to my church, passing by good Baptist and non-denominational churches on the way, I say, what are you doing? You're not part of the life here. You're here for your mind. You don't want to be part of the life of a church where Christ is found. You want your mind stroked. This is a tragic thing. Second, second point. Christ's presence in our lives is for our comfort. It's for our comfort because life here is difficult. And this is, again, a misconception, but it is a common one, that Jesus comes in and he's sort of liquid comfort for the believer in the midst of the pain and the trials of this world. That Jesus comes into our lives sort of like morphine rather than as antibiotic. He dulls the pain. He doesn't make us well. He just makes us able to endure. Doesn't transform or change us, but he makes us able to stand in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the inferno. And I want to say, as you look at the passage, you'll notice it says, Lo, I am with you always. And that's not L-O-W. I remember Billy Graham preaching on this once and saying that a, a, a nun who was frightened of flying was fingering her rosary. And the guy next to her said, don't you know that Jesus said, I am with you always? And she says, no, it says, Lo, I'm with you always, not in the plane. One great way to ruin a sermon by telling a stupid joke. That low is the Greek word to do. And it's a, it's, I don't know what to describe it as. I didn't look up what kind of a word it is, but it's, a, it's an interjection. It's a word that sounds like, uh, watch out, or look sharp. If you look and you find all the beholds in Matthew, and if you look throughout all the Gospels and you see where Jesus says behold, it's never, it's never do, or look sharp, or behold, uh, um, isn't that a pretty rose? <laughs> it doesn't follow. Behold, a, a cute cat. Yeah. It, it's never anything like this. Behold, the, the master's going to return. Behold, there are angels in the sky. Behold, it's always something that's a little startling and scary. Uh, I take my 12-year-old to baseball games all summer. And uh, the thing I can think of that comes closest to this behold that Jesus says is, is when we're at a baseball game and there's a foul... A foul pop-up, 
And, uh, and the people who are watching the game and not sitting there on their phones doing email shout, heads up! And everyone goes, oh! <laughs> yeah. Everyone jumps, where's the ball? Where's the ball? You know? And uh, I sort of, I, I wasn't as aware of the danger of it until about a year ago when that ball came down on the front fender of my car. And I'll show you the dentist. It's deep in the car. I, you think about that hitting your head. So now when I hear a heads up in the midst of a game and I'm on my phone and I'm doing, I go, oh, you know, it's a scary thing. That's what Jesus is saying here. Look sharp. Pay attention. Behold. Lo and behold. Now, what it means is, lo, behold, I am with you always. It's not a, a warm fuzzy. It's a, it's a look sharp. Heads up. I'm with you always. Heads up. I'm with you. Heads up. I had a heads up yesterday. I mean, everything that everyone has said, including Joseph of the, the pocket dialing, is something that I was thinking about as I was preparing for this, this afternoon. Yesterday morning, I was going with, uh, driving over to the church, our new church building, to look through it with a guy on it. There's a pastor with me at Christ the Word named Jason. We were driving and we were talking about another pastor on our staff who's taken a new church. And his name is Andrew. We were talking and we were saying, I was saying, I was pontificating in my seat. I said, this is what Andrew should do in the new church. He should do this and this. And, and because he doesn't have strength here, he shouldn't do that, but he should do this. And I'm talking and, and Jason's saying, yeah, yeah. And in 20 minutes we're talking about what Andrew should do as he leaves us and takes a church in Spartansburg, North Carolina. Well, we get to the church and we start talking to Mike Bowles and, uh, and we're going around and we're watching the concrete be poured and suddenly Jason disappears and when he comes back to the group, the small knot of us who are talking together and watching the concrete, when he comes back, Jason, who never looks abashed by anything, he looks ashen. And I'm going, whoa. He says, David. He says, David, come here. And Jason never says anything at less than 110 decibels. And he never whispers it to you. He'll say it in front of the whole world. And I think, what's the matter? Did he just hear it? He comes, he says, come here, David. He says, I just got a call from Andrew. Oh, he said, my phone pocket dialed him on the car ride here. <laughs> oh. oh. He said he has a 20-minute message on Google Voice and he can hear us talking about him. <laughs> I, whoa, whoa. Even now, I'm sitting here frightened, I think. What, what did he hear me say? And uh, uh, it was a terrible morning. I mean, that, that, it, it was a ruin of yesterday to us. To, uh, we went back over that conversation for two hours and said, what did we say? What did we say? What did we say? Well, that's what we've got before us. Jesus is saying, look sharp. I am with you always. I'm with the church. I am with you. I'm watching what you're doing. You're not operating in some vacuum. I'm watching you. I have my eyes on you. All authority in heaven and earth has been given me. And I'm expecting you to do the job I just gave you. Look sharp.
We, uh, we need to remember that, that looking on Jesus is a cause for fear and mourning. We're told that we will look on him, the one we have pierced, and we will mourn for him. We will weep. But Jesus' presence with us is not liquid comfort. It's chastening. It's fear. Yes, it brings comfort, but only as we go through the chastening and the fear and the power of God with us in the church. Brother Andrew, who wrote this little book, he's always given it as an example of, isn't it nice to to practice the presence of God as though practicing the presence of God was, is like the, uh, the bed and breakfast. The woman in the bed and breakfast Cheryl and I went to just before we went into the ministry. We came to the house, little house in Dixon, Illinois. And the woman learned that we were going to be a pastor and wife in Ohio. And she disappeared. We were the only guests in the bed and breakfast. She disappeared. She didn't want to, it was clear she didn't want anything to do with us. She had all these Wicca things all around the house. And when we came down to breakfast, she laid out a breakfast, but she didn't appear. She had everything there. And what we heard from another room the whole time we were there in the morning, the whole time we were there was an um. Sean and I were looking at each other. We thought, is the, is the refrigerator broken? Yeah. <laughs> is there a, some kind of a bulldog underneath the door that's slobbering and making a noise? And, and then we realized we were looking at all the books, all the Buddhist books, that she was doing her mantra. She was doing it because she didn't like us. She didn't want us around. Now, some people say it's the opposite, you know, that we do this mantra of God's presence and we get to know him in the way that the Buddhists do a mantra. Nonsense. Listen to Brother Lawrence. He's written about how it is that he came to know God's presence. He said, now some people say you should do this and that, the prayers of the monastic order, you know, the, the, the practices of the monastery. And he says, some people say you should do that, but I've not followed all these methods. I don't know why, but on the contrary, I know that they've discouraged me, these methods, these alms, these prayers, these disciplines of the monastery. This is the reason why at my entrance into religion, I took a resolution to give myself up to God as the best return I could make for his love and for the love of him to renounce all besides. For the first year that he was in the monastery, I completely, I commonly employed myself during the time set apart for devotion with the thought of death, judgment, heaven, hell, and my sins. Thus I continued for some years applying my mind carefully the rest of the day and even in the midst of the biz my business to the presence of God whom I considered as always with me often as in me. Such was my beginning. And yet I must tell you that for the first 10 years I suffered much. The, app the apprehension that I was not devoted to God as I wished to be, my past sins were always present to my mind. And the great unmerited favors which God did me were the matter and source of my sufferings. During this time I fell often and rose again presently. It seemed to me that all creatures, reason and God himself were against me and faith alone for me. I was troubled sometimes with thoughts that to believe I had received such favors was an effect of my presumption 
which pretended to be at once where others arrived with difficulty at other times that it was a willful delusion and that there was no salvation for me. When I thought of nothing but to end my days in these troubles, the troubles of a conscience, not a heart that's saying I'm ready for God, a heart, a man who for 10 years has convinced his heart is not worthy of God. When I thought of nothing but to end my days in these troubles, which did not at all diminish the trust I had in God and which served only to increase my faith, I found myself changed all at once and my soul, which till that time was in trouble, felt a, felt a profound inward peace as if she were in her center in place of rest. Brothers and sisters, if we want to know the presence of God, we look to the church and we see in her and in her offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith, we see the power of God. We see in ourselves as we look inwardly the sin, the wickedness. We don't see something that's ready and meet for the, the Christ to enter in. We see an abode that's dangerous even for us and repugnant to Christ. But we look and we hear from the church and the gospel and from the, the baptism of the church that there is a washing. And we come to trust him. There is a, a, a third misunderstanding, and I'm getting briefer as I go on, all right? Which is that the, the world is big and bad, and that we are to fear the world as Christians. We are going to fear the world, doing the work of the Great Commission, and therefore, that's why Jesus is with us to our comfort. And I say to you, no way, no way. Jesus is far more fearful to the world even than he is to us. You understand? Jesus is with us. Not so that we'll take comfort in the midst of fear, but so that we will have power and cause fear. That we will go out and bring fear, the fear of the Lord to the world. Not so that we will escape the fear of the world, so that we will be agents of a divine fear as we go out into the world because Jesus is with us. Some years ago, many years ago, I was in a, a Lutheran school in St. Charles, Illinois. And it was a, a brand new school and it didn't have its disciplines down. And they allowed the, the caretaker of the school to offer a camp out, a weekend camp out on the grounds of the school. It was an old monastery or nunnery uh, to, to have a camp out for all the students with no one there but the caretaker. And uh, it was a recipe for disaster. Especially because the school in that first year was filled with people who had been kicked out of the public school. And so, so we show up at this camp out and here's 30, 40 young guys and girls, sophomores and freshmen. That's all the school had. And the most delinquent of the lot have said they've told their friend. And their friend has just gotten out of St. Charles Boys Home. Now, if you've grown up around Chicago, you've heard of St. Charles Boys Home? You know, it's not a pleasant place. It's where they go if they're so bad that they're put away throughout their juvenile years. They're in there for rape and murder. And this guy was a gangbanger who had been put into St. Charles. And it was a friend of the guy who was in our school. He's just gotten out the day before and he was part of a gang. And this stupid guy had told his gangbanger friend who was in for assault that there was going to be a whole bunch of young women and guys without much adult supervision on the campus of this high school. And we learned that this guy and four, three others from his gang were going to show up. They were going to come that, and they were going to, and everyone there, all 40 of us, were quivering with fear. We were frightened. We were so scared. Guys who thought themselves cool and strong before that, they were actually shaking. 
Well, we were waiting for this car to arrive with these guys. We were told they were going to come at some point in the afternoon. And a car pulls up. And a, a guy gets out of the car. Now, uh, can I get you to show picture number one? All right? I don't want to lose you with an illustration. All right? But I want to illustrate this. Now, this is our family at about that age. There's dad, there's mud. Most of you have met mud. Nathan, our brother, died 10 years ago. Tim, the tall one back there, and me. All right? And that's the church directory from probably 73, 74. Um, I looked a lot like that at the time I was at that Valley Lutheran High School camp out. Tim, however, had gone a few, it was, this is a few years before, the, the, this picture was taken a few years before that camp out. And so Tim had changed by the time of that camp out. And so the guy who pulls out of the car and makes every guy who's on the camping trip disappear is the guy who's in this next picture. Can you show number two? You, you see that guy? How many of you know who that is? That was Tim. That is Tim. If, if, if you look, that's the grandfather clock that's in their living room right now. All right? That's the guy who got out of the car. And, and made every other guy on that high school grounds disappear. Okay, you can put it down now because I want to tell you the rest of the story. But immediately after Tim pulls in, this old Chevy pulls up with four guys who are obviously gangbangers. Four guys, pulls in, and pulls up, and, and there's my brother. And Tim at the time smoked. And I'm just telling this story about how we're frightened of these guys, and they pull in. So Tim's standing there in, in the majesty that you saw in that picture. <laughs> and, and other guys who are on the camp out have said to me, is that your brother? Who's that guy? And I said, it's my brother. They're starting to creep out, and then this other car comes, and they disappear again. And I'm left there with Tim, and I'm going, ooh, you know, I'm a nice little boy, and this is not my speed. What does Tim do? Well, he walks up to the car. He takes a, a, a puff of the cigarette. The guy in the driver's seat is not the bad guy. The bad guy's in the back seat. He leans in the guy in the back seat. Uh, the guy in the front seat says, is there a party here? And Tim says, yeah, there is, but it's not for you. And then the guy in the back seat, the bad guy says, blankety blank. So Tim takes a puff on his cigarette. He leans in the window, leans on the window and goes, and blows it like this in the face of the guy in the front seat. What would you say? I don't know if Tim even remembers this, you know. But I remember it real well. And the guy swears again. And Tim says, you want to say that to me? And the guy goes, blah, 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 blah. And never gets out of the car. And, and uh, eventually, that car drives off. Well, this is what it's like to walk through life in a world that hates us because of Jesus Christ with Jesus beside us. This is the promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You may feel frightened, but let me tell you the power's on your side. You may feel frightened and you may be thinking that it's over, and it's not. 
The final point is this. The cause of the church is not one of elegant defeat. But as Stephen preached this morning, the cause of the church is triumph. Jesus doesn't say, I'm with you now. I'm going to go away. And when things get really bad and you've been blown out of the water by your enemies, then I'm going to come back. And I'm going to make all the bad things good. And I'm going to turn all that was terrible into niceness. What Jesus says is, I'm going to be with you to the consummation, to the very end. He will be walking by our side in the church to the very end as we triumph every step we take. He will be with us and we have nothing to fear. I am, I'm ashamed at the evangelical world's response to Harold Camping. You know, the man who t taught that the world was going to end. Because Harold Camping only actually practiced what all the rest of the people believe. He actually put his money on the line. He said that it was more important to have a personal relationship to Jesus than to live in the church. And he preached it. But it's the mantra, it's the belief of the whole evangelical world. Camping actually said, don't go to church. He was willing to say it. Camping actually sold some of his stations to buy billboards warning that the end was coming, a terrible end. Camping was betting on a bad end. He was betting that things were going to go south in a big way. He actually believed and put his money where his mouth was. Brothers and sisters, you say that you believe in a victorious end, that you believe Jesus is returning in victory, that you believe Jesus is going to bring the church triumph. Where is your money? How are you spending your life? Where are the risks you're taking knowing that Jesus is at your side? What are you doing that shows you have the courage because at your side is the Savior? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will bless the remainder of this weekend, that you will give us the spirit in great measure, that you will bless the men tomorrow who are to be ordained tomorrow evening with the Holy Spirit, that the laying on of hands will be the impartation of the Holy Spirit. May we walk with you knowing that you are with your bride and that to be with your bride, to be within her, to have all the blessings of heaven. Give us this assurance, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.